Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Today, the fight continues over the proposed cannabis facility for the Green Organic Dutchman. A new report from Canada's Electronic Spy Agency says the 2019 election is very likely going to be the target of foreign interference. Also, Attorney General William Barr is testifying before Congress on the Mueller report for the first time. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. We told you a couple of weeks ago uh, about the, uh, well, we thought was an agreement uh, between the City of Hamilton City Council and uh, the Green Organic Dutchman, uh, which was the uh, the cannabis uh, operation that was going to set up, actually expand uh, in Ancaster. And it looked like it was a done deal, but apparently not. Uh, there has uh, yet to be an agreement, according to the city staff, anyway, on this situation, uh, which begs the question, uh, why is it becoming so difficult for operations like this, which are now legal, to thrive and expand? Uh, this is an industry that uh, everybody else thought was just going to you know, be smooth sailing now that what the legislation has passed, but apparently not so much. Joining us to talk about this is Matt Maurer. Matt is the vice chair of Cannabis Law Group at Torque and Mains LLP. Uh, uh, first of all, Matt, thank you for the time. Great to have you on the program today. Thank you. Thank you for having me. This, is this an isolated incident? I mean, you know, the, the legislation's been passed some time ago. Whether you like the stuff or not, it's legal. It's 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 an industry now, and it's an industry all over uh, the country at this stage right now. Are other jurisdictions having trouble getting setting up a shop here? Uh, you know, it depends on the jurisdiction. The, the the growing facilities have actually been legal on a commercial level since uh, 2016 mm-hmm. for medical purposes, and rec came in last year. So, you know, these facilities grow both medical and recreational um, product, and it really depends on the municipality. A lot of a lot of these growers are looking to northern when when we're talking about Ontario, they're looking at northern Ontario where the land is a little bit cheaper. Um, and again, depending on the municipality, some are welcoming them with open arms because it's a number of jobs that these uh, production facilities create. Let's talk about myth versus reality here, because I think this is uh, an element of the debate when the legalization uh, debate was going on a couple of years ago now. Uh, a lot of the concerns and a lot of the, the hesitation I hear from some councillors and, frankly, from some citizens uh, is based on, on the, first of all, some just don't like the idea of having a, a, a cannabis operation anywhere near them. But we hear things about, well, the, the smell and the odor and the, uh, you know, the water that's going to be used up. Uh, are, are those legitimate concerns? Um, I would say for the most part, probably not. You know, like these facilities have very high standards that they have to meet before they get licensed and they can operate. Um, the smell, there's very sophisticated HVAC and scrubbing uh, devices that have to be put into the facility. So by and large, um, there is no smell coming off these facilities, certainly not uh, a, a large amount. Um, you know, I read in the article that um, people are concerned with excess or increased truck traffic, things like that. Um, I don't think it's kind of a daily thing where we have trucks going in and out of these facilities based on the nature. You know, you're growing a plant, there's a growth cycle, there's a harvest cycle, and then the product comes in and out, and it's not like a daily thing. So, um you know, it's really no different in a lot of ways than any other, if it was a tomato greenhouse or if it was a pharmaceutical uh, processing plant, um, it's really the same. And I think when people hear the word cannabis, they suddenly assume, you know, many people assume the worst and they come up with all of these um, concerns that aren't really justified. What is the worst then? I mean, is, is it just uh, this, this myriad of, of, of uh, objections based on you know, perception as opposed to the reality? Yeah, it's based on perception as opposed to the reality, and I'm not familiar exactly where the facility sits in the community. I don't know if it's, I'd be surprised if it's plunked right in the middle of a residential neighborhood. No, it's not. It's, it's a rural area. Right. So then, you know, look, it's really no different 
if you're going to have complaints about a business, um, you know, you don't like where it's located in the municipality, you're concerned about maybe, I don't know about the groundwater usage and things like that, but I'm sure they've addressed that all ahead of time. So if you're concerned about, if you have general concerns about industry in the area, then sure, those complaints would carry over validly to, to this because it's a, any other business. But if it's specific to a cannabis processing facility, really that probably means the people making the complaints aren't really familiar with what's going on, and perhaps a little bit of education could go a long way to alleviating people's concerns. Well, this is one of the things that, that's kind of got me scratching my head, because I have talked to the proponents. I've talked to the, the ward councillor for the area, too, and he's got some concerns about the whole operation. I understand that. Uh, but when I talk to the folks uh, from uh, the, the, the Dutchman properties and, and some of the operations they've already got, uh, as I mentioned, it's in a rural area. Uh, there's, I don't think there's any residences within a, a, probably a kilometer, a couple of kilometers anyway, if I can do this in my mind's eye. And it's set back quite a bit ways from the road anyways. As a matter of fact, there's a bit of a berm there that you can't even see the operation. So I, I'm, I'm puzzled as to why people would be concerned about, you know, first of all, the physical structure itself and, and having to look at it. And, and secondly, the odor. Uh, <laughs> Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm not a farm guy, i got to tell you, Matt, but I mean, I've worked on farms when I was a kid, and there's a lot more odors that I'm concerned about than would be the possibility of smelling a couple of plants. Yeah, look, if this thing's a kilometer away from any residential setback, and, and that's a good point, you know, you drive by a farm on a, on a rural country road, and you can smell it from the road. This, I think, would actually be less because of the requirements that are, are required for HVAC systems and so forth. So, you know, and look, there's, there's companies, um, let's use Barry, for example. There's a company that set up in Barry a year and a half, two years ago. They had five employees, and this is a cannabis company. They're over 100 now. So, um, you know, I, I, it's hard to see the concerns when the facility's put in such a rural area and the benefits to the community, um, you know, generally speaking, are, are tremendous. Like, there's uh, facilities in King Carden, there's facilities in Kirkland Lake. They pick these smaller communities because the municipalities are oftentimes more friendly, um, and they're looking for jobs, and the land is just cheaper. It doesn't make any sense to plunk one of these facilities in an industrial dis- district in Toronto when you can get the land for so much cheaper just outside of the city. Yeah, I was telling our listeners that uh, I know there's one being constructed right now in Collingwood, uh, actually right between uh, halfway between Collingwood and Blue Mountain. Uh, huge, huge facility, and and again, it's it's in a quasi-industrial area, but it's really uh, agricultural more than I guess than it is, and uh, they're embracing it. Uh, and I've heard about the berry operation as well, which which begs the question then, Matt, how big is this industry getting, and how quickly is it is it uh, is it multiplying now now that the legalization is in place? It's um, you know it's I've heard estimates a couple of years, maybe about a year ago, from uh, Deloitte said it's going to be an eight billion dollar industry annually. Uh, $22 billion when you put in all the accessories and services that go along with it. So it's a large industry, and it's not going anywhere. Um, look, they're still trying, as, as most people probably know, there's a product shortage across the country, and that's why in Ontario we got restricted to 25 retail stores to start. And so these companies are expanding, and they're, they're building new facilities, and they're licensing more companies to um, create more product for the domestic market. But our Canadian companies are also going abroad. They're in South America, they're in Africa, they're in Europe. Um, and because, you know, Canada is a leader in this industry, and this industry is coming online across the entire world, first medical and then will be recreational in the future. So it's not going anywhere. And I think, you know, by and large, when people start understanding more about the industry and these facilities and what they do and what little consequence there is to them, um, you know, it's something that people can 
can get behind because there's a lot of uh, economic and other benefits to it. Well, let's talk about that e- economic benefit for just a second. As I understand it, and, I, and I've talked to a couple of people that are already in this industry over the uh, the last couple of years, some of them right here in the Hamilton area, uh, these are pretty w- decent paying jobs. I mean, this is not minimum wage stuff from what I understand. No, and the facility, uh, you know, most of these facilities, especially on a larger size, which which this one's going to be, you have all kinds of people. Um, you know, I've been to facilities where they have their own engineering teams. It's it's almost like a self-contained small city. You know, they have to monitor the hydro and the water um, and the nutrients. There's people to trim. There's people to package. There's security. There's office staff. There's um, legal accounting. You know, you name it. Uh, they've got it, and and it really supplies a really broad range of jobs, everywhere from entry level um, to people, you know, just looking to get in, maybe out of school, maybe a uh, university on a break, to um, career paths for people. And I haven't heard of a single municipality, especially smaller rural rural ones like um, King Carden or Smith Falls, Ontario, that regret having these facilities in their communities if anything it's the opposite they you know there's you read about smith falls ontario they'll talk about how that hershey factory closed and it was a big problem and canopy growth came in and now you know we've got all these jobs we've got people coming in and the local businesses all benefit because where are these people going to eat and shop on their way in and out of work if they're not going to actually live in that community on top of it let's talk about the marketing if i could matt uh, as you've studied uh, the, and, and, and analyzed of course what's going on in the industry uh we had a story yesterday that talked about the difference uh, in price range uh, from buying a, a legal product for, from one of these shops obviously as opposed to what you can buy on the street and it, it's a significant difference right now is this uh, as this market expands and as some of these operations start to set up shop, as, as you've described, uh, I got to feel that's going to have an impact on price. In other words, right now, as you mentioned, if there's a shortage, it's going to cost more. That's, that's really just, that's the market talking, isn't it? Yeah, and in every other, you know, mature market we've looked at, which is mostly um, in the United States, in Colorado, in California, um, Oregon, um, what happens is, you know, legalization, and it, it's been the same in every one, legalization comes and prices are, you know, wherever they may be, and then prices eventually go through the floor within a year or two because there's more growers, the growers get more sophisticated, and they get better yields. Places like Teagod um, expand their facilities and can harvest more, and all of a sudden um, there's much more supply, um, and maybe demand drops a little bit from the initial you know, wave of legalization. Maybe it doesn't, but overwhelmingly we see the price start going going down. And so you're right, you know, look, uh, black market is cheaper at the moment. That makes sense. There's not there's not really so much overhead in the black market whereas these facilities cost hundreds of millions of dollars to build and to staff with people and there's a lot of regulatory compliance that comes along with that. So, um is it overnight that the price is going to match with the black market? No. Um but you know, there's we still saw lineups uh, and we still do see lineups at the legal stores. And yeah, if you're a regular consumer right now and you've got your guy or your woman who you go to uh, for the last 10 years, um, it's going to be hard to con- convert you off of that right away. But, you know, casual users or people who might not have consumed in 20 years since university uh, or shortly thereafter, all of a sudden they thought, well, you know, maybe I'll go to the store and I'll try some because I used to and let's see what it's like. Those people aren't going to try to 
look for a dealer on the corner, they're going to go to the store. And, you know, I think you're going to see, I think the last statistic I read is that there's already been a 20% dent in, you know, what was estimated to be the black market prior to legalization. What about the medical marijuana aspect? Now, this, of course, has been going on, as you mentioned, for some time now. Uh, is it becoming more acceptable now within the medical profession, for instance, to, to use uh, cannabis products as an alternative? Certainly, uh, you know, every day now we hear these horrific stories about opioid overdoses and the crisis that's going on with fentanyl and so many other uh, painkillers and things of this nature. Uh, obviously, cannabis can look at this as a viable alternative to this, but is that being embraced by the medical community? Yeah, it's an interesting, it's a really interesting point because um, it's getting there and there's some doctors that are very passionate about it, but there's um, there's a ways to go. And, you know, some doctors have um, preconceived notions about, you know, negative preconceived notions about the plant and what it can do. Other doctors, you know, I asked my doctor once just out of curiosity, I said, you know, do you prescribe it? And he said, no. And he said, not because I'm against it just because I'm not allowed to prescribe anything that I don't understand, and I don't understand this. Like, I haven't studied it, I haven't researched it, and I don't know, so I just don't don't do it. And that was sort of the first time I heard that. So, you know, one, doctors have to come off of um, some of them off long-held beliefs. Two, they have to get educated so that they're comfortable uh, prescribing it. Three, I think we need more um, research, and that's going to come as well, so we can get more understanding about what they do. And four, you know, you've got pharmaceutical companies um, that have a vested interest in pushing pharmaceutical pills instead, or, or drugs or pills or whatever the case may be. That's a pretty um, strong lobby, isn't it? Yeah, so you know that you got to compete with that as well. But it's it's hard to um, you know it's hard to argue with some of the results. And you know some people who don't believe in medical benefits, you know, take a look at the seven or eight year old child, um, and there's stories of these people all over that have you know. 10, 20, hundreds of seizures a day, they go on certain types of cannabis that doesn't necessarily even get them high because there's maybe no THC in it or very little, and the seizures stop. And it's, it's kind of like that's hard to, when you see stuff like that, it's hard to argue that there's not a benefit, even if it's not completely understood just yet. Exactly. And I, I can remember having discussions uh, with uh, people in the medical field probably 10, 15 years ago uh, who were very apprehensive about holistic medicine. They said, no, 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 we'll stick with the tried and true thing, you know, the, the, the narcotics and the, and the other uh, pharmaceuticals and things of this nature. They, they seem to have embraced that to a certain extent anyway, so maybe they just kind of be late to the table, I would think. Sure. And look, we've got countries not in, in, in the Western world, in the Eastern world, that still ascribe to a very more natural and holistic type of 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 um of medicine and it works for people in those societies so you know i personally i'm skeptical of certain natural medicines we i think we all read stuff and hear stuff and we kind of roll our eyes but you know i've also seen other natural type remedies actually work on people that that i know my family my friends so there's something to it and i think you know um just like cannabis you know like uh, i don't think it helps when people says it can you know cure blindness and make you grow hair back things like that, like that's just not helping anyone. But certainly um, for some things and perhaps many things, and we don't even understand this yet, there is a tremendous benefit. And we're going to be figuring that out over the next, you know, 5, 10, 20 years. Well, just to wrap this up, I guess we're not going to get any news about what's going to happen in Ancaster here for at least another uh, week and a half or so. So we'll see how that rolls. Uh, Matt, thanks so much for jumping in today and uh, giving us uh, some, some insight into what's going on here. Appreciate the time. No problem. Thank you very much for having me. Take care. Matt Maurer, Vice Chair of Cannabis Law Group. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. We have an election coming up on uh, this side of the border, of course, in October, another general election uh, to elect a federal government. 
And a new report that uh, came out today uh, says that uh, Canada's electronic spy agency now says that uh, the 2019 election is very likely, that's the phrase they used, very likely going to be the target of foreign interference. It's a rather chilling thought. So what do we do about it? What are we doing about it? Let's uh, bring Daniel Tobach into the conversation. Daniel, of course, is the CEO of Sci Intelligence Incorporated, experts on cybersecurity. Consulting includes uh, penetration testing, vulnerability assessments, and security audits. And uh, always a welcome guest. Daniel, great to have you on the program again. Thanks for the time today. Thanks for having me on. Uh, you're not surprised by this report, I assume? Definitely not surprised. Uh, let, let's talk a little bit about this, because the reference point we always use when we talk about uh, foreign entities interfering, I guess, is, is the watermark is always going to be the 2016 uh, presidential election down in the States, because it, it seemed to be happening right in front of our eyes, didn't it? For sure. I think everybody is taking cue what we have seen, uh, or, or supposedly have seen, with, uh, with the presidential election between uh, Trump and, and Hillary. And, I mean, since literally day one of that election being complete, uh, the voices in Canada saying, well, we are basically next. Uh, so everybody's been watching for that for the last uh, several years. So why Canada? Why, who would be interested in Canada, Daniel? I mean, I would just say there's, there's, there's definitely, you know, with the political climate out there, there's different threat actors that might be interested in, in, in interfering with the election. Uh, I mean, I, I think we're, we're overthinking it just a bit. Uh, I mean, you have uh, Russia, you have China, you have different uh, countries out there that are interested not necessarily to interfere in terms of having any type of access to the results, but actually interfering just to show maybe a bit of power or capability. I think that is really more the angle that is being played here by other countries. It's almost as if the, the short answer is that they're doing it because they can. Absolutely. Absolutely. Just to kind of flex the muscle and say, look what we can do. We can really mess things up for you. That's right. I, 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 you know, just in my personal opinion, I don't think any country is really interested in, you know, if, if, which party leads Canada and what policies apply to, to the rest of the world. Our foreign policy in Canada as, as a player in the global world is fairly small compared, for example, to the U.S. and, 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 and China and other, and other countries in, in, in Asia. So, I mean, this is something that we have to think about. It's really about showing, hey, we can do this and we will prove it to you if, if they go to that length. Uh, because we've seen this happen in other circumstances, clearly, and you and I have talked about this on the show in the in the past. Uh, I mean, obviously, one of the stated goals, I guess, of, of Russia is, is destabilization of, of Western uh, defense organizations, Western economies, and things of this nature. Uh, and we've seen that happening with some of the things that, uh, that Trump has done vis-a-vis NATO and I think it's this. And we know that the Russians were in some way involved in the Brexit uh, referendum from a couple of years ago as well. So uh, that that you can understand because that seems to be you know very much in tune with what their goals were and, and, and try to attain that sort of thing. But that's, I guess, one of the things that uh, that we're wondering about here in the Canadian situation is, is you know, do we exert that much influence? And it's not personal, because I really don't think that uh, Vladimir Putin cares whether there's a conservative, an NP, NDP, or a liberal government in Ottawa, does he? Absolutely. Uh, you know, I, I always say I kind of like to take a, a look at this from, from a different lens, and that lens that, you know, as, as, a, as a sovereign country, Canada really has to review its security when it comes to all of our various infrastructures. You know, elections is one, water, hydro, any type of critical grids and critical infrastructure. Elections, to me, is one of them. I think it's about thinking about that first and not giving a reason or the actual opportunity for threat actors to be able to do what you know they're perpetrating to do. I think that's very important. How do we do something like that? I, I, I'm going to go out on a leap here and assume that the government's already got some sort of a, a plan in place. You know, the government has a plan in place, you know, but we always say in forensics, 
you always got to look at the weakest link. I, I, I still chuckle when I'm passing by Pearson Airport and I see the, you know, the, the computers that you're supposed to present your, your card and passport malfunction or have the operating system just jumping at you because they're in an outdated system. It's very unfortunate, but when we live in the 21st century in a country like Canada, that should not be happening. You always think of a third world country, and that's something that is attainable over there. It shouldn't be in Canada. What should officials do? They need to look at the infrastructure. They need to have real security audits of, of their actual infrastructure they're going to be using, and not what I call checkmark, checkmark security, because that is very important. And the bad guys are not following the rules, right? They're going to get creative. They're going to use uh, special uh, created exploits. Uh, I mean, so it's going to be very targeted with their if, their if and when they're actually going to be doing this. Are we too smug in this country? Uh, is there that attitude that, that maybe permeates not just through the halls of, of power in Ottawa, but maybe even right through the country right now? That, uh, who, who, who'd be interested in us? And we're, we're no big deal. There, there's a bit of that attitude, uh, Bill. I, I have to be very upfront. I see this with uh, very large companies. I see this with government. Uh, they sometimes don't take the threat serious enough. One thing that I have to give kudos to our neighbors in the U.S. from one side, because they've had more trouble there, they actually respect and understand risk a little bit better. They quantify the risk. They understand there can be a problem, and it will cost dollars and, and, and panic. Uh, in Canada, I feel we're a little bit easygoing when it comes to this. But we've seen the impact it can have, though, Daniel. That's that's rather troubling. Uh, we've seen that it did have an influence on the on the U.S. election. We certainly saw that it had an influence on Brexit. And look at the, the the problems that are still ongoing because of that, uh, and and their involvement in that in some way, shape, or form. Uh, I mean, it'd be naive of us to suggest that, that you know they couldn't do, and wouldn't do something like that here too. Just to in the, in the I guess in the interest of destabilization. I mean, the, as you mentioned, with the flick of a switch, uh, you can throw this country into turmoil. Yeah, we are we are too nice and forgiven. I, I have to say, our best attribute is our worst attribute. We're too nice and forgiving. How, if an entity wants to get involved in this, and I know that they talked a little bit about Russia in this report, Daniel, but uh, they're not the only ones that are involved in this. We can get into that in a couple of seconds. But but how would they go about this? I mean, how how do they actually try to influence this election? How do they try to influence voters as they as they go to the polls? So not to create a roadmap for any, any copycat. No, there, I get that, yeah. <laughs> uh, we're going to have to have everybody sign the disclaimer bill. Um, I mean, it, it really, from, from a very high level, it, it, there's re- when you look at it and you kind of take two steps back from a whiteboard, it, it almost looks like a jigsaw puzzle. So, I mean, there's, there's attribution to where you start on social media and you have, for example, 100,000 followers that are now publishing a story and pushing a certain agenda. Then another medium is where you try to compromise the accounts of certain elected officials and people in power and you fake their uh, Instagram and Twitter accounts, and you start posting things uh, on when you're compromising particular email accounts belonging to high officials, and you actually see the information that is flowing through that. And I'll give you just an example. Just as you've seen in the election, uh, you know, leading up to the, to the voting, you know, five, six days before, you saw different stories popping up, and that was in order to sway uh, election decisions and so on, right? Well, we so saw that, yeah, in the U.S. election. Remember the the, the stories that, that uh, you're right, did go viral about Hillary Clinton's health and that she had collapsed and fallen down and she was battling some uh, terminal disease, etc. Yeah. And, and, and as you've told us a thousand times already, Daniel, uh, people see it on the Internet and they believe it to be true. Yeah, and you see, I always say it's very difficult to get 100,000 people together on a soapbox and, and, and you know, in protest 
it's extremely easy to get a million people to do that online, right? So, I mean, it's, uh, I don't know if you've seen some of those uh, farms, uh, you know, on YouTube where they have uh, about thousands and thousands of cell phones and perpetrated users, and they're just posting things, they're replying to things, they're sending them. Those are what they call, you know, data distribution farms. So, so those tools are there, and like you say, I don't want to create a roadmap for anybody that wants to do anything like this, but I guess the other side of that coin is then, then how do we uh, try to combat that? How do we prepare ourselves? How do we play defense and, and be reactive, or proactive rather, as opposed to reactive? I mean, personally, because social media has become such a powerful platform in Canada and around the world, I believe that we should have legislation and particular laws against what I call a wrongful decimation of information. We should really have agreements with social media platforms like Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, to be able to watch, you know, postings that are, uh, you know, are fake in nature, or not authentic. I know it's a big job, but unfortunately, 89% uh, of people today get their information through social media platforms. It has now become uh, a real communication uh, channel. So we got to do something about that. Okay, so so obviously we each one of one of us have to, uh, a responsibility in the station too. I guess uh, because they always come around to talking about public education, and in other words, don't get duped in situations like that. But boy, for people that spend a lot of time on on, on social media and on the internet, Daniel, that's that's pretty difficult. It's definitely difficult, and you know, I, I, again, I I, I I don't mean to get too dramatic here, but when you look at uh, George Orwell, nineteen eighty four. The decimation information, it can be good, it can be bad. I think social media platforms serve a very important purpose in, in creating a communication channel and moving information to people very quickly uh, without, for example, just being stuck in front of the television uh, because nobody you know, sits all day unless you're watching some reruns and shows, uh, jokingly. Uh, but uh, unfortunately, it can also be used for bad in, in perpetrating information that is not authentic and frankly incorrect. Who are the bad guys? I mean, we always talk about this in terms of Russia, and, and certainly they've got their fingerprints on an awful lot of stuff that's gone on in the world, but they're not the only player here, are they? Uh, absolutely. I mean, everybody always points at Russia, and I mean, Russia definitely has many things attributed to them, but they're not the only you know, game in town that actually plays in this. I mean, uh, you know, m much of the various countries today that have various embargoes on them uh, have a lot of state-sponsored resources to actually do what they need to do. So again, you have China, you have, you have parts of India, uh, you, have other, you have North Korea. There's many countries out there that are interested in basically flexing their muscles. Right? So, <clears throat> excuse me, we have to be cognizant of all of that then. Uh, now, the federal government obviously has a, a, a role to play in this situation. Uh, and we've talked about public education, that has to be part of it too. But I mean, are, are there other things that they can be utilizing here that we can learn from, from other countries that have also been victimized by this that we might be able to adopt for, for the Canadian situation? You know, I, I don't mean to sound negative, but there's only so much that can be done. I really feel that we need to have our legislation, uh, which is about 18 years behind, uh, really come up to speed and create some new laws and regulations around what you can post, what you cannot post, and, and excuse me, proper penalties behind that, that if something is attributed to you. I mean, political parties should not be using the social media platforms to provide negative and what I call slander-type uh, messaging. 
it's, it's, it's a beautiful platform. It can be used for good, but we all got to have some new rules to follow. Well, and we saw that, didn't we, just a couple of weeks ago in New Zealand after that terrible tragedy down there in the mosque, uh, where they immediately adopted uh, new regulations down there vis-a-vis social media and Internet usage right now that the providers are actually going to be on the hook. In fact, if somebody is starting to use that sort of a, a, a circumstance or that kind of a platform uh, to spread hate or to spread misinformation. In that case, it was actually live streaming the, the horrific event that was going on. But uh, they're, they're cracking down, so it can be done. Absolutely, and it should be done. And I mean, when you look, when you look at the, again New Zealand, Australia, you know, different of the you know the 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 I six uh, type uh, group. I mean, we all share very similar platforms and uh, and political strategies. Uh, I mean, we should really really be looking at that. I mean, that is the right way to go about. Again, our legislation regulations are a little bit behind when it comes to internet and misinformation. We actually don't really have any type of regulation today, what you can post, what you cannot post, except hate, right? So, but there's so many other things that are being um, updated on the platforms outside of just hate, spreading of hate. And, and clearly, that's that's got to be the focus uh, when we go on here like this. And and, uh, and I know that there are some tips that we've talked about in the past about exactly the, you know the sources and the origins of some of the information that may be on a Facebook or on Instagram or anything else like this. I mean, uh, I, I know that there's a big pushback now against the quote unquote mainstream media, but uh, a lot of these made up names and made up sites actually can actually be the ones that are pushing a lot of this misinformation. Absolutely. I mean, we really have to crack on this together. It doesn't do anybody any good. Because everybody get affected by this. I mean, uh, you know, we talked about this before. You know, every other day I get some kind of a story update to something that was created by somebody with no credible resources or credible attribution, but it's there. And, I mean, you can either read it and believe it, or you can read it and doubt it, or you can just delete it. Uh, so it's out there. There's a lot of dissemination and misinformation. One thing that I wanted to ask you about, uh, because they talked about, uh, for instance, in the, in the presidential election of 2016, of actually having an impact on voting itself, not just the influence of where people may want to vote or for whom they may want to vote, but obviously because of electronic balloting, uh, they can actually mess that up pretty badly too. Now, we uh, are still using the 16th century method of paper and, ben- and pencils, etc. Does, does that make us uh, less likely to be attacked in that regard anyway? So funny you mentioned that, but you know what I call piece and paper and the good old-fashioned pencil, that's a little bit difficult to compromise <laughs> remotely from a friendly place in the, uh, in the, in the world. Uh, but as far as I know, again, we also have some of our election calculations going through computerized and digitized devices. Those are the ones that are in danger, because at the end of the day, if it's a standalone box that's just collecting data, that's not a problem. The moment it's connected to the Internet so it can be uploaded to a server, there's a weak link thing. And it's irrelevant how many firewalls you place there. It really comes down to the core of the code of the actual box. Well, we've uh, got to pick up our game, clearly, uh, if, unless we're going to be victimized by this again. Daniel, thanks. Pick it up a notch. You bet. Thanks, as always. Sir. I really appreciate you taking some time for us today, Daniel. My pleasure. Thank you for having me on. Take care. Uh, Daniel Tobak, of course, from Scientelligence. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Uh, as we speak, uh, U.S. Attorney General William Barr is uh, sitting before the uh, House Appropriations Committee, uh, of course, in the uh, U.S. Congress. Uh, he's got some stuff to answer for. Uh, there's a lot of questions being raised, obviously, about the Mueller report and 
and why it's taking so long for him to release this. Uh, how much of it is he going to release? And uh, oh, there's an issue of the uh, Affordable Care Act too, which uh, the Justice Department has uh, stuck their fingers on now too. Joining us to talk about uh, what's going to happen, uh, some of the testimony and the ramifications, is uh, Elliot Tepper, a professor emeritus of political science at uh, Carleton University. Uh, Elliot, thank you for the time. Great to have you back on the program today. <laughs> thank you. Good morning, Bill. I'm actually sitting in front of the TV watching those hearings. Well, it's must-watch TV. I mean, this is this is intriguing as as this goes on, and uh, this this is one of those benchmark moments, I think, actually, Elliot, where say, maybe now we're finally going to get some answers because uh, you know. Uh, there have been so many questions raised right now, and a lot of people are just shrugging their shoulders. It's been about two weeks since uh, he got his hands on the report, and uh, we got like a, a little page summary out of this whole thing right now. Right. It looks like a book report. Yes, well, uh, two things. One is don't expect a lot of answers <laughs> today from William Barr. I have been watching him. He's a very good tap dancer. Yeah. Uh, he was asked some very pointed questions, and he's saying, well, I've, I've said all I'm going to say on that, or, and, or wait until it's wait until it's released. So uh, I have been watching, and there's some things coming out that are worth highlighting. One is he said that the report, after all the redactions, will be released uh, next week or within a week. So there's going to be more released. Uh, that was uh, in itself interesting. There were also a lot of things tucked away in there. There was actually some, this is this actually about the appropriation for the Justice Department and some of the questions mm-hmm. that relate to that. And the, uh, so some of the questions said, well, why are you cutting so much money basically away from things that help people? <laughs> and uh, he didn't really have good answers for that. So there's, there's a lot still to come out of what he's saying today. One of the things that I think has not been picked up on sufficiently is he, um, the Republicans, of course, were asking either about totally other things than the Mueller report in order to not discuss it, or they were then asking questions very much along the lines of, well, wasn't this a witch hunt all along, and now are you going to go after all those people, uh, as as Trump has been insisting and and demanding of his attorney general, are you going to go after all those people who are saying all those false things about us? And essentially he said, yes, uh, I am going to investigate the investigators, and yes, there's a, a hunt on for... Uh, there's something technical, the Pfizer reports, but a lot have been made about how uh, this was misused by Mueller to go after Carter Page, one of the key witnesses. So there's there's a lot of things yet to come out of this. Um, do you have some specific issues you want to raise? Well, there's a couple of things, and, and one of them, I guess, is, is exactly what you've talked about, is, is Barr's uh, perception of what his role here is. And this goes all the way back, of course, to when Jeff Sessions was, was butting heads with the, right. the president and eventually recused himself about the, with the investigation. Uh, and, and it was very much evident that Trump wanted uh, the attorney general to be his own personal attorney. And it sounds to me... Uh, from what you're saying today, Elliot, and, and from what we've seen over the last couple of weeks, that uh, that's exactly what what Barr seems to be doing. Well, there is reason to be concerned. Is, is he the attorney general for the people, or is he the attorney general uh, for one client, uh, the president? And since he had a past history uh, that did raise concern, he was involved in the Iran-Contra decision, uh, saying uh, encouraging President Bush to, oh, go ahead and pardon all those people who were involved. So there's, um, there's a track record there, plus what you and I have talked about, the, the 19-page memo that he suddenly, as a private citizen, was circulating, essentially saying Mueller was wrongheaded to be underway at all, and the president has expansion or powers here, 
and you can't really touch him anyway. So uh, there has been reason to be concerned about his role. I think the he's playing it uh, before in this in this committee hearing very cautiously. He has said all the right things. I'm going to be coming back after the release of the report. This is an appropriations examination. There's some interesting things came out of that. But uh, the Judiciary Committees of the House and Senate, if they wish me to come back, and they are booked, I think, already for May 1st and 2nd, I will come back and ask answer questions specifically about the report once the redacted version is released. There's no commitment at all that he made today that I saw that he would provide to Congress the unredacted material as they're demanding and the underlying uh, reasons for why the material was written as it was inside the inside the final report. Uh, the Judiciary Committee in the Senate has authorized the chair to issue a subpoena, if necessary, to uh, the Attorney General to bring forth the entire report. So the question of whether it's going to be brought whether Congress and therefore anybody else will ever see the whole thing is still not at all clear. But but there's the contentious point, and I guess we don't know how far up the uh, the, the the ladder it's going to go before they actually get a determination on this. Because I, that's what I'm hearing from Barr is that uh, you know there, there's some of the stuff here is, is still under investigation. Uh, there are some grand jury right. testimonies, etc., uh, which I, I don't think people should have eyes on. Yet I'm hearing from the from the Congress, though, Ellie, on the other side of the coin, that says, yeah, yeah we can. We've do we've done that in the past. We look at confidential information each and every day, and that's part of their job. Right, and behind closed doors. Exactly. And, and, and a gang of eight, a selected bipartisan group of uh, people who are selected to go behind closed doors and examine such things. So, so with that precedent, with on, that... But with, I suspect yeah. it's going to go into the courts and be dragged well past the uh, 2020, uh, at least through the campaign period of the 2020 election. So they, it's it's starting to look more and more like the, like the Trump people don't want anybody to see this report in its entirety until after the election. And have and have means to, to see to it it doesn't happen. And whether... To what degree the Attorney General of the United States will cooperate on that is an open question, but for the reasons we've discussed, there's concern that he will, in a sense, validate a process that ultimately leads to, to the disappearance of this report through the key period of the election itself. All right, so let's assume those roadblocks are being put in place right now, and that's obviously what Parr was hired to do, and he's, he's obviously started to implement that already. Well, I... I I'm trying to be cautious on this. He is the Attorney General. Uh, there are reasons to be concerned, but we'll have to see the, the the actual facts as they evolve. But there are two things at play here. One is should the, the Congress see this, and then should the general public see this? And I, I can understand uh, quite clearly that there's some concerns and some legitimate concerns uh, about the public laying eyes on what could be confidential material. I, I, I get that. But I don't understand why he's throwing a roadblock up against the, uh, the congressional members when there has, as you mentioned, a precedent already been set. When special counsels have done past investigations, uh, those people have seen everything, including grand jury testimony. Yes, and that, that's now a technical point. If he redacts anything relating to grand jury, then the only way to really release it, he's saying and others are saying, is, well, then you'd have to actually start articles of impeachment and only then, under that process, could you actually access materials relating to grand jury. Let's let's stand back a little bit, Bill. I, there's some summary things I think should sure. be said in terms of the Mueller report itself. The first is, and the two out of the three I think has been emphasized, but not sufficiently. The first is 
Mueller documented uh, once more very clearly that the Russians were interfering with the American electoral process. And there were 32 indictments, 191 uh, uh, separate uh, charges raised, I think over 200 finally, about the nature of how Russia did that. There should now once again be brought back before the public a consolidated view of just how much America was under attack. And that tends to get lost in all the rest of the things that we really care about as well. Was the President of the United States involved? And as you know, what about domestic? But the big story there is the Russians, and right now, you know, Brexit is under, (laughs) is once again the center story overseas. And the Russians interfered in that as well. So the nature of the attack on democracy is being somewhat lost in all of the noise. The second is that the Mueller report we knew all along was already partially in front of us. You and I have talked about it in that things relating not to obstruction or to collusion or conspiracy, but to financial impropriety, those have already been hived off. He sent them to other courts. Those are continuing. I think there's something like 10 cases at the moment in either federal or state courts, and those will be ongoing. This is by no means the end of the Mueller investigation in the sense of of will the President of the United States be in some jeopardy over financial impropriety, among other things. But the third, and that uh, takes us right to the bar component of this, what that short four pages did was to free up the President from potential challenges in the Republican primary. It was sufficient. The Barr letter was sufficient to quell any possibility that the um, the pr- other Republicans might jump in. Had he said, what we have here is another unindicted co-conspirator, had there been other damaging material. So what that Barr letter did was foreclose a real threat to the President of the United States, other than the first two we're talking about, in that uh, people like George Romney and uh, Jeff Flake and and uh, Kasich from Ohio, they would have readily jumped in, challenged the sitting president in the pro- Republican primary, divided and weakened the Republicans, thereby greatly strengthening the, the case for the Democrats. And that, I think, has not gotten the attention that the Barr memo deserves. So who manipulated that? Well, Barr put out his memo as he saw fit, and everybody's still discussing it, but the political impact of it was not only to allow the president to say I'm completely exonerated, but to do so in a fashion sufficiently clear to his base and to the Republican Party that he was not going to be challenged uh, politically. That could easily have gone the other way. Had the Barr memo said other things, or if the Mueller report had been released in its entirety then, uh, instead of the Barr summary of the summaries, then we might be in a different situation. But as it is now, it was all very good news for for uh, Donald Trump. But are we naively supposed to assume that that was an unintended consequence of Barr's four-page letter, or was he directed to do so? Well, um we have reason to think he wasn't directed to do so because that would be a very clear violation of all kinds of, of, of regulations. I, it, the President of the United States, I don't believe, got on the phone and said, hey, dictate, I'm dictating the, your, your letter to you. But the political implications or the political impact is as I just described. 
All right, let me ask you about obviously the 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 situation is is getting a little cloudy here about whether or not uh, the public is going to see much of this report or right. even whether the Congress is. Why can't they just do an end run around this, Ellie, and, and, and tell, uh, you know, at this point, uh, just say, look, forget about Mr. Barr, forget about the Attorney General altogether. We want Mueller in front of us right now, and we'll ask him these questions. Yes, and the, the, the possibility of bringing Mueller into, uh, before Congress, before various committees, is certainly there, and he can be subpoenaed. Uh, he, they can ask him, or they can subpoena him, they can make him come. But right now, he's still in office. <laughs> that is, he is still apparently uh, grinding away with closing out the final stages. Uh, and if he does come before Congress, would it be open or closed? And could he, what, even if it's closed, could he say, look, I can't discuss that because there are legal implications and all the other things. So how much we would get out of Mueller, we don't know. What we do know is that his staff, for the very first time in two years, actually leaked which they didn't, this was, you and I have talked about this as well. There's there's no tighter ship than the Mueller investigation in Washington, which has been leaking like a sieve for two years now. But his, some of the people involved in the investigation did let it be known that they thought that the bar summary was um, was not reflective of the report. And then it came out through that same kind of leak that the Mueller people themselves had done summaries and that those summaries were not released by or even incorporated into the Barr memo. And so there's a lot of unhappiness that what Barr has done, and since that's what we're talking about today, that what Barr has done is not reflective of the Mueller process or its report or its conclusions. Where's Daniel Ellsberg when you need him? <laughs> I, I, you, I just got this feeling, Elliot, that something like that is going to transpire sooner than later. Uh, yeah, that some of this stuff is going to come out. Like you say, now that the the, the the Mueller people are starting to speak out, although you know not as one voice, but that they're raising some concerns about this. Uh, you got to wonder if somebody's going to just get the feeling, look, at, I've got to do this because apparently the AG's not going to. Anything is possible. Uh, there are probably severe penalties for doing so. I sure, there are. There's. You know, are you willing to go to jail to do, you know, how much public scrutiny, the trolls will come to get you? Remember, we have a whole new attack method now in our modern era where trolls can get online on any side and uh, and really make your life miserable. So and some of those are bots from foreign powers. So uh, it would be a very brave person that, to release it all. It's certainly not impossible given the stakes and given the high feelings on all sides. Well, and again, depending on exactly how they feel the report should have gone and the stuff that they've put into it and the work they've put into it, uh, I got to feel that uh, that somebody in that organization, uh, if if this report is released in the fashion that we seem to think it's going to be, uh, where they're going to say, well, that's not a true representation of what we did or even what we concluded, uh, there's going to be some pretty upset people, and you don't know how they may respond. Yes. The, the, the question really is, is this going to, let's assume all that happens, will it make a difference? And it will make a difference in two ways. One is politically. That is, are people going to start saying things that would be politically damaging uh, and that has not yet come out about the nature of collusion or obstruction or financial impropriety? That, that might come out. But the other side is legally. Will anything come out that has legal implications for the president or anyone else involved in the Mueller investigation? Uh, uh, we'll have to see if it's only 
in the court of public opinion, that is politically, it doesn't look like it will make any difference to either side. Uh, the polls have not moved up or down for Donald Trump as a result of what we've learned. Complete exoneration didn't give him a bump, and the complaints uh, that we still don't know did not depress his poll standings. So we are at the moment, at the moment, entering the 2020 race with the two political parties essentially having to slug it out irrespective of the Mueller report. But that is the sword of Damocles that's hanging over everybody's head right now, because if there is something, even if it's not about an illegal uh, action, but if it's something there, excuse me, that that suggests some impropriety on on behalf of of the president, whether the candidate Trump, whichever the situation might be, you figure that's got to have an impact on public opinion, which is going to have an impact on polling, too. Doesn't look like it. (laughs) It looks as if the people who really like Donald Trump really are not going to be swayed by whatever is likely to come out uh, in terms of the political impact. That is, if there's no legal impropriety there, uh, something that is justiciable, that might lead to court cases involving the president, uh, either now or when he's out of office, well, they, you know, Mick Mulvaney just went on TV and said uh, about the president's tax returns, well, that was everybody knew that he could have released it and during the campaign. He didn't do it, and he got elected anyway, so people don't care, so forget about it. So, that was, so the, the question now is to the 2020 election, and is there anything likely to come out of the Mueller report that we don't know yet that will affect that? That, of course, is totally unknown, but on the political side, it does not look like that will make a big difference. On the legal side, we just don't know. But it makes for great theater. Uh, Elliot, I'll let you get back to it. Uh, thank you so much for the time today. Always great to have, uh, have you on the program. Oh, you're very welcome, Bill. Take care. That's uh, Elliot, uh, of course, Tepper of the uh, Professor Emeritus from McCartan University. Uh, keeping an eye on what's happening in Washington and uh, the implications thereof, of course. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.